So welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm the founder of the MarTech Alliance and your host today, Carlos Doughty. We are joined by none other than Simon Sinek, the optimist, visionary, and best-selling author, who you may recognize for his concept of the why, but today we are here chatting about his fantastic new book, The Infinite Game. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So I'd love to jump straight into the book and find out a little bit more about what inspired it. So a few years ago, a friend of mine handed me this little book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Carsey. He's a, he was a theologian uh, uh, at NYU, professor there. And he, he made this definition that if you have at least one competitor, you have a game. And there are two kinds of games. There are finite games and there are infinite games. Finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective, like football. Right? We know who the other team is. There are rules that we agree to play by. At the end of the game, there's a winner and there's a, lo a loser. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, then there are infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players. The rules are changeable. You can play however you want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. And when I heard this definition, it suddenly struck me how many infinite games in which we are players every single day. Um, there's no such thing as being the winner in your marriage or amongst your friends. You know, there's no such thing as winning global politics and there's definitely no such thing as winning business because there's no end to business. It just keeps going and going and going. Companies come and go, but nobody's the winner. And it struck me that if we are players in infinite games, shouldn't we learn how to play in the infinite game? Because if you listen to the language of so many people, so many leaders, they talk about being number one, being the best, and beating their competition. Based on what? Based on what agreed upon objectives, based upon what agreed upon timeframes. And what I've learned is that when we play in the infinite game with a finite mindset, there's a, very, there's a few very predictable and consistent outcomes, amongst which include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, the decline of innovation, all of which contribute to the eventual demise or decline of the organization. And, um, and when you talk us through when you were developing the book, because uh, I found it super interesting how I'm right in saying you were jumping on flights to write the why you didn't want to write it on the ground. Uh, that was my first book. So, so first book start with why. That's yeah, how I so, it, yeah. so what was the process for this one? What changed? Uh, every book that I've written, um, I, the, whatever process worked for the previous book to help me be productive didn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> For start with why it's true, I actually would call the airline and say, I need to be on a flight for at least three, three and a half hours. I don't care where I go. I'm looking for a really, really cheap ticket and I'm, and, and hopefully not a very full flight so I have an, uh, a greater chance of getting a free upgrade. And I flew to Phoenix and back and I flew to Orlando and back and I flew to Los Angeles and back from New York in one day, got on the plane, showed up to the, to the airport with just my computer under my arm got on the plane, flew to LA, got off, had lunch and flew home again. And, uh, and it was unbelievably productive. My most productive writing days were on a plane. And then when I set out to write Leaders Eat Last, I thought, right, start booking flights. And I booked a flight and all the same rules, headed to the airport and I was sitting in the taxi heading to the airport and dreading getting on the plane because, because I have to start with my, why my life had changed so much where I was traveling so much 
um, that I just the thought of getting on a plane for no reason, like made my heart sink. And so in the taxi on the way to the airport, I actually told the taxi driver to turn around and go back, go back to my house. And I never got on that plane. And, and the second book was completely different. That one I did, I was much more productive when I had somebody in the room to help me. And so I had somebody who I used to joke was my babysitter, but her job was to <laughs> just my, my book sitter. Exactly. Her job was to come uh, in a few, a few days a week and basically just sit with me and be a sounding board. And those were my most productive days, the days that, 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 that she was there to help me. So this, now this book, the infinite game, I'm like, okay, I need a, I need a book sitter. <laughs> and I, somebody came over and it didn't make a difference. And so this one actually, strangely, it was routine that um, I ended up getting, uh, a, a, instead of writing at home, I went somewhere else to write and I would wake up in the morning and I treated it like a job. I would go to work and I would go write. Um, and that, that was actually the most productive way I wrote this book. So it, the fascinating thing about creative process is I've learned that I don't actually have one. And I think for some creative people, you know, where you have a process that works, and then you stops working, they blame themselves and then they have writer's block and they have, but maybe it's the process that bro that's broken, not them, because I had all the same problems and instead of beating myself up, I changed the process. So I, I've been very flexible as to what my writing process is. And even though I hope whatever worked last time works next time, have been open to the fact that it, it's changeable. That's super interesting. And um, I think it, it kind of ties in a little bit with some of the bits that actually jumped out in the book. Um, so you were talking a lot around how how you structure and build an infinite game mentality and having these five parts yeah. and your point around the existential flexibility actually just carries over in that same thinking in terms of the ability to adapt your process. Um, could we sort of jump into those different five areas and walk through those in more detail for anyone that, that um, hasn't picked up a copy of the book, starting sort of kicking off with the just cause? Yeah, of course. So as we said in the finite game, the goal is to win, right? Um, and, and we set our strategy in order to win. That's what we do. We develop all of our processes in, in order to win. In the infinite game, the goal is to, to, to live on, right? To outlast. And so there's a whole bunch of very different ways in which we do that. And I boiled it down to these five practices, these five essential practices. Um, you have to have a just cause. You have to advance a just cause. You have to build trusting teams. You have to study your worthy rivals. You have to have a capacity for existential flexibility and you have to have the courage to lead. Um, and it's, I think of it much like health where, um, where if you want to be healthy, you have to, you, you know, have to, you have to work out, you have, you have to get exercise, you have to uh, eat healthily, you have to get enough sleep and you have to have foster close relationships. Um, and you're, if you have all these things, you will live a healthier life. Now, if you do some of them and not all of them, it'll definitely be better, but you need to do all of them. And it's the same for the infinite game, which is if you do some of these practices, it'll definitely help, but you really should do them all. And much like uh, health, it's a lifestyle. Though you may have finite goals within, I want to lose X amount of weight by some date. If you don't hit that number by that date, it's fine. Like everything's all right. You can continue to work and everything will show up. And so these five practices are just that they're practices and you just continue to work on them and tinker on them all the time. That's, that's what they are. And I found uh, one of the things around the trust in teams, I think it's incredibly important. I think um, a lot of, a lot of listeners would recognize and appreciate that. Yes, hundred percent agreed. 
but how do you do that? And I think um, it's fair to say if you're a small organization, it, it's, it's easier to influence that, that trust and building that culture and bringing people together. But if you're, if you're listening right now and you have an incredibly large workforce, what, what sort of practical recommendations would you sort of give to people to, to really, to, to practically apply it? Because one thing is obviously wanting to, and, and reading it and going fantastic, this makes so much sense. How would they adopt that and bring that to life? Well, let's be crystal clear what a trusting team is first. So a trusting team is a group of people who work together, who are comfortable, they feel psychologically safe around each other. They feel safe enough to raise their hand and say, I made a mistake, or I don't understand the job that you've given me, I need more training, or I'm scared, or I need help, without any fear of humiliation or retribution. If anything, they do so with absolute confidence that um, uh, that their, their boss or their colleagues would rush in to support them. That's what a trusting team is. If we do not have trusting teams, we have a group of people who show up to work every single day, lying, hiding, and faking, pretending that they know everything when they don't, um, not admitting if a mistake was made, um, definitely not saying that they need help or being sometimes not even being willing to accept it when it's asked, all for fear of getting in trouble or maybe finding themselves on a short list for the next round of layoffs or something. Um, and eventually things break. And if enough things break, it dramatically impacts the survivability of the organization. And this is why trusting teams are so essential in the infinite game because it's about longevity. So when you talk about practical things that make in, uh, trusting teams, it's good old fashioned leadership. Mm -hmm. Remember leaders, it's nothing, leadership has nothing to do with rank. Or, or, or title. I know many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. They have authority and we do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we would not choose to follow them. And yet I know many people who sit at the lower levels of organizations who have no authority, but they've made the choice to look after the person to the left of them and the person to the right of them and we would follow them anywhere. In other words, leadership is the responsibility to look after those around us so that they can work to their natural best. That's what leadership is. And it's good old fashioned leadership that creates an environment in which trust is more likely to, to flow. Remember, trust is a feeling. We can't tell people to trust us. It doesn't work that way. And so leaders are responsible for setting the environment and set the environment so that uh, trust can flow. And some of the practical things we can do are very easy. Um, the leader, first of all, has to extend trust to, to everybody else. That's one of the sacrifices of being a leader. I've never in my life heard a great leader say, prove to me why I should trust you. Leaders take the risk to trust. If anything, the leader has to prove that they're trustworthy to their team, but the leader goes first. That's why we call you leader, because you set the example. Honesty, you know, people put honesty on the walls of their, of their companies as a, as a value. You know, if you have to write honesty on the wall, I think you have bigger problems. <laughs> but, but, but honesty is really easy to do. It just means tell the truth. It doesn't mean be mean. It doesn't mean brutal. It just means telling the truth. That's all it means. And if leaders are honest about the situation, then it's more likely to engender trust. Finding out who people are, treating them like human beings, where we actually roam the hallways and make eye contact with people and say hello and learn their names and ask them where they're from and if they have any kids, as opposed to treating everybody like they're just a cog in a machine. That engenders trust. These are very, very simple things to do that cost no money. 
and they get forgotten. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear you say it in such simple forms and, and yet you can see where, well, I think probably a lot of people have worked in a lot of companies where that is the case, where it just, those, those things that are simple to apply, they're just missed. Um, correct. They're correct. And this is why leadership is, it's a practice. I mean, it, you have to do leadership. You don't, you don't just have leadership. You know, again, it's not rank. You can have a position of leadership, but that doesn't make you a leader. That just gives you the, op the opportunity to lead at greater scale. You know, you, you're responsible for the lives of even more people as you work your way up the chain of command. Um, but yeah, it's something we do. It's not something we have. And on a different point, around the um, thinking about your rivals, not your competitors, can you talk us through your worthy rival or rivals and, and how they help drive you? Oh, absolutely. So in a finite game, in a race or a competition, you have competitors and the goal is to beat those competitors. In the infinite game, you don't really have competitors. You have rivals, other players in the game. And some of those rivals are worthy of comparison. And we, are, we consider them worthy of comparison because they do something or many things better than us. And their mere existence, their strengths, reveal to us our own weaknesses. There's a, I'll give you an example. There's another guy who does what I do. He writes books, he gives talks, his work is extremely well respected. I respect him. Um, I hate him. It's totally <laughs> irrational. It's totally irrational. He's always been very nice to me when I've seen him professionally. I, I just hate him. And as a result of my, my hatred of him, I'm really competitive with him. And I, 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 and I regularly will go online and check my book rankings and then immediately check, the, check his. And mind you, I check no one else's. I just check his. And if I'm ahead then I'm smug. And if he's ahead, I'm angry. You know, he's the kind of person who, when his name comes up, I get uncomfortable, right? Uh, so one day we were invited to speak at the same conference where we would be interviewed on the same stage together. And the interviewer thought it would be fun if we introduced each other. And so I turned to him and I said out loud, you make me really insecure. All of your strengths, are all of my weaknesses. And when your name comes up, I get really uncomfortable. And he turned to me and he said, funny, I feel the same about you. The reason I had such hatred for him had nothing to do with him, it had to do with me. It's because his strengths revealed to me my weaknesses and, it, and that is uncomfortable energy. And it was much easier to take all that uncomfortable energy and channel it against him rather than take a hard look at myself and say, where can I improve? We all have this. We all work with people. Uh, we've all had the experience of working with somebody where they get a promotion and we get angry. Think about that. We got angry at somebody else's success as opposed to experiencing joy with them, right? It's because it's revealing something in us. There are other companies that when you mention another company to people who work in a different company, they get angry at the mere mention of that company, especially if you compliment them, especially if you say that they make better products. They get furious. Well, what is that revealing in them? And instead of trying to be beat them instead of trying to set up and, and treat it like a finite game because remember there's no winning in business um, the opportunity is to take a hard look at yourself and say where can we improve because the only true competitor in the infinite game is ourselves it's ostensibly a game of constant improvement so the value of worthy rivals is they show us our blind spots they show us the places that we can do better and sometimes they serve as an example we can learn from them I think that's really true. Um, 
And it, it's funny, I sort of smile as you say that because I can, I can think in my own world, yeah. And, and it is so true when you distill it. It's, it's not a negative thing and it's actually just something that makes you more conscious and aware. And it, and it is when you go deeper, it's going, actually, do you know what? There's an area there where I think I'm weaker. And it's, um, yeah, it, it drives you to want to be better. Exactly. I take it you don't want to share the, the individual's name. Well, it's in the book. It's, okay. it's, it's really funny. I wasn't going to reveal I did, it. I didn't want to ruin it for anybody that hasn't. I wasn't, I wasn't going to reveal it. And I called him up and I said, because now we're actually, very, we're actually very close friends. That was a very cathartic experience uh, that day for both of us. And I, I never check his book rankings anymore. And I, you know, and I, 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 I love talking about his work. Um, but I, the only reason I'm not going to talk about it now, because I think it's a spoiler. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I, it is revealed. Great stuff. Um, let's just quickly jump into existential flexibility. So the ability to change your playbook as the game changes. Can you give us just a couple of, um, a couple of companies right now that you think understand that and they have really evolved, they've changed, they're, they're adaptable, and conversely, those that are literally, well, maybe not falling by the wayside, but they're, they're failing to, to adapt. Sure. So the definition of existential flexibility goes way, way beyond the normal flexibility of daily work. Existential flexibility is, an, is the willingness to make a dramatic strategic shift in order to advance this just cause, this, this, this vision of the world that you're trying to build. Um, uh, it's not, it's like I said, it's not just the daily flexibility. Um, most leaders um, will never have to go through an existential flex their whole careers, or at most, only one of them. Um, they are rare uh, because they, are, they can be very traumatic for the, for the organization. And so they're only done when it's the right thing to do. The, the quintessential example is, is, a, is a historical one um, in which uh, Steve Jobs, a man who, was, who had a, a cause, he believed in empowering individuals to stand up to Big Brother. Um, this is why he was enamored with the personal computer, because he saw it as a perfect tool to give individuals power to, to one day even compete with a corporation. And uh, it's already a big company after the success of the Apple I and the Apple II. And in 1979, Steve Jobs and a bunch of his senior executives went and visited Xerox Park. Uh, and Xerox had shown them a new invention of theirs called the graphic user interface. And the graphic user interface gave people the ability to use a computer without having to learn a computer language, where you could use a mouse to click around icons on a screen to get the computer to work. <laughs> and Jobs sees this innovation, and he sees it as a profound leap forward to empowering individuals, because if you don't have to learn a computer language, that means even more people who aren't necessarily math mathematicians or engineers could take advantage of this new technology. So they leave Xerox Park, and he says to his executives, we have to invest in this we have to invest in this graphic user interface thing. And one of the executives says, Steve, we can't. We've already invested millions of dollars and countless man hours in a different product, a different strategic direction, and we can't simply walk away from that investment. If we do, we'll blow up our own company. To which Jobs responded, better we should blow it up than someone else. That decision led to the Macintosh. Well, a computer platform so profound that it completely changed the way computers exist in our lives. They're now household appliances on every desk. And in fact, the entire platform, the entire software of Windows is designed to act like a Macintosh. That's existential flexibility, who's willing to walk away from a profitable direction that would have been fine because he found something way better to advance his just cause. And most companies 
don't have that kind of courage. Because especially if you're on a profitable path, why would you, why would you shift? And if you look at entire industries, the amount of times there was an opportunity for existential flex that they just, they just failed. Like, why is it that Apple, a computer company, invented iTunes and not the music industry? It's because they were too busy protecting their existing business model. They literally didn't see the opportunity in the internet. Now they're all playing defense. Why is it that Amazon not only invented itself, but invented the e-reader? Why is it that Amazon invented the e-reader and not the publishing industry? It's because they were too busy protecting the status quo of selling books, and they missed that their cause had much more to do with helping people read, which may or may not include paper. Why is it that, that Netflix invented itself and not the music, uh, and not the television and movie industry? You can see because they were all protecting old existing business models and they didn't have the, the gumption for an existential flex and now they're all playing defense. And that, that carries, carries us very well into my next question really, which is, I suppose, in order to, to really make those bold decisions, you need, the other thing you talked about was a courageous leadership. So for those people that recognize and, and go, yes, 100%, I, I know I need to do this, but they don't quite have the courage yet. They've got the risk, whether it's potentially their career on the line. Um, what, what, would you, what would you say to, to help encourage them and, and to make that leap and to really embrace change? It's such a good question. And, and, and really, the capacity for existential flexibility requires a little more than courage. There's a lot of bad leaders that have a lot of courage that can break their, their in, even if they're making the right choice, they can break, they can break their, their organizations in doing so. There's a lot of good leaders who can do it, but they don't have the foundation built. You have to have a, a just cause. You, in other words, that reason to exist beyond simply the money you make or the products you sell. Remember, Steve Jobs had a just cause to empower individuals to stand up to Big Brother. That's what drove the decision. It wasn't a money decision. It was an advancing the cause decision. And the second thing you have to have is trusting teams. You have to have those trusting teams in place because the existential flex will absolutely put the organization through short-term stress. And if the teams don't trust each other, people will just abandon ship or operate out of fear and hunker down and will not be able to survive the existential flex. In other words, that existential flex will actually do more damage. It actually can hurt the, 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 the organization rather than, than help it. So the, the, the courage really comes from the people who say, we understand why we need to do this because we agree with the cause and we're here, don't worry, we'll get through this together. That's what gives us courage is the people. If you think about it, a, uh, a world famous uh, trapeze artist would never try a brand new death defying act for the first time without a net, <laughs> right? In other words, it's something external that gave that trapeze artist the courage. And it's the same for us when we, when we need to go through an existential flex. It's our people. It's, it's the trust that we have with our people that they will stick with us through thick and thin in order to advance this just cause that gives us the courage to say, we're gonna do this. It's always external like that. Really, really interesting. And um, just going to turn it around to you, actually. I, I think, obviously, there's so much that you've written about. There's, there's such amazing talks you've produced. You obviously inspire a hell of a lot of people and, and really do help people in terms of developing their leadership. But I'd, I'd love to throw it back to you in terms of, I suppose, the, the areas of, of leadership that you find challenging yourself, personally. So... My challenge is the same as all other leaders. You know, you would think that my organization runs absolutely perfectly because I talk about these things and write these, write about these things. As it turns out, 
we have all the same challenges as everybody else. <laughs> all of them. We have, we have structure things. We have strategy things. We have personnel things. We have it all. We have all the exact same, the exact same challenges. What I pride myself on is that we actually work hard to respond in a different way. That if we have somebody who's having performance issues, we choose to coach before, before firing. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't fix performance issues by firing people. We fix performance issues by coaching people. And if we have a personality issue, if somebody's actually, you know, a little bit toxic, we don't immediately fire them. Um, and we don't just simply allow them to keep going because their performance is good. We coach them. The only time in which I believe in any organization, it's time for someone, as a friend of mine says, um, allow them to go work with the competition <laughs> um, is, is when they prove to be uncoachable. Um, and so I'm proud of the fact that when, when that we respond differently, like we respond with patience and we respond with empathy and, and we're imperfect, but we try and we recognize that leadership is a journey of constant improvement. Um, but, but, but our struggles are the same as, as every other company. I appreciate you've only just finished your book, but I'd love to ask your next plans and projects in your infinite game. So I have a just cause. Um, a vision of the world that does not yet exist, a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe when they're there, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. And I'm betting on leaders. I believe that leaders are the best chance that we've got to create that world. And so all of my work is devoted to helping both find and support and uh, engage with the leaders that I think are more likely to help build that world. And I'm totally agnostic as to what I have to do to get there. So I write and I give talks and, um, uh, and now what we're doing is exploring all the other ways um, in which we can do that. So that's, that's the fun that we're having right now, which is, which is what are all the other ways in which we can help advance that cause. And it, I've seen, so is one of the areas you're going to focus more heavily on or, or potentially, because I, I appreciate your point there that whatever, whatever, whatever helps drive your course, but is education the space that you think you'll do more in, in terms of whether that be digital, whether that be workshops, whether that be? We are, we are developing more workshops, yes. Um, we, uh, we, a digital space obviously allows the scalability of, of, of workshops. We're exploring that. Um, I also have launched a new publishing uh, house uh, called uh, Optimism Press in partnership with Penguin Random House because I get to meet wonderful people who also have pieces of the puzzle that advance this greater good. And when I, when I think that there's enough, enough, enough substance to their ideas, I now have an opportunity to publish them. I'm now a publisher. I never thought that would ever happen. Um, and so Optimism Press is about bringing the ideas and the people um, uh, that I believe contribute to the greater good uh, to the world. Um, and so far we have two books published, um, How to Make a Plant Love You by Summer Rain Oaks, and Trust First by Bruce Deal, two remarkable uh, human beings with remarkable ideas about um, how to view the world and how to view people and how to take care of people that I think are essential pieces to advance, advance towards this vision. Fantastic. Simon, it really is inspiring. Um, please do keep up the work. It's, yeah, I'm, a, I'm obviously read a, a hell of a lot of your books and find it fantastic. Um, I really do appreciate your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure a real personal treat for me and I'm sure our listeners have, have loved it as much as I have. Thank you so much. Oh, and I'm so grateful to you. You know, as I said, this is about spreading a message. And so I wouldn't be able to spread a message without folks like you giving me a platform to talk about my ideas and share them with as many people as possible. So thank you so, so much for, for giving me a place to, 
to, to share these ideas. I, 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 we, we are in this journey together. Fantastic. Thank you.